Pauline epistle called Titus. And we're going to be in there for a couple of weeks. So if you want to turn there, it's kind of towards the back of your New Testament after the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy, if you want to turn there. We're going to be looking at the first chapter today. Now, it's, it's called an epistle because that's just a fancy word for letter. And it's called Pauline because it was written by the Apostle Paul. And uh, it's called Titus because that's who Paul is writing the letter to. His name is Titus, and he's ministering to the churches in Crete. Now, there's, there's no other place in the Scripture where we learn of, of Paul making a missionary trip to Crete uh, than, here, than here, but at some point he traveled to Crete, and he planted churches there, and he's left Titus uh, behind there to watch over them. Now, we don't know much about Titus either, really. We do know that Paul has a great deal of confidence in him because... Um, when there was another church in Corinth that was in a huge mess, huge, Titus was the one that Paul sent uh, to straighten it out, and he, he seems to have been able to do that. But here he's looking to Titus again to handle another mess, and Titus's job is already a challenge because Crete was notorious in the ancient world for its rampant immorality. And that immorality is exerting an influence on the church. But on top of that, false teachers are attacking the churches in Crete, spreading false doctrines and undermining the gospel. And it's these false teachers that have stirred Paul uh, to, to write this letter, and they serve as the backdrop of, of his instructions and his teaching in the letter. But before we jump into the first chapter of Titus, I want to go ahead and, and pray for us. Father, I, I, thank you, I thank you for this time, again, for this uh, privilege and, and weighty responsibility of preaching from your word. And I, I pray that even now you would be equipping me for that. Let nothing come out of my mouth that contradicts your word or is not true to it. And I pray for, I pray for our hearts. I pray that you would soften our hearts so that we would just not hear things and learn them and um, just fill our heads with more knowledge, but that what we learn, the truth that we talk about today would actually change us and to be more, more like Jesus, the one in whose name I pray. Amen. Okay. Well, you may notice that um, my first point is about gracious beginnings. And before we get started, I want you to know how gracious the Lord has actually been to you this morning because um, the first time that I went through this sermon, it was a shade under 50 minutes. 50 minutes. And there's a good reason for that. And that is, most of the sermon series that go through uh, this chapter, they have three separate sermons. Okay? Because um, there's a ton of stuff in there. But, you know, we're doing it in one this morning, and on top of that, it has to be abbreviated because we have Communion Sunday, Right? So the Lord has been very gracious to you because um, we're not going to be going anywhere near 50 minutes, just in case you were scared about that. But what this means is that the pace is going to have to be pretty fast to get through the chapter, okay? And what that means is that there are going to be a lot of things that we have to skip over and a lot of things where I would really love to go a lot deeper in and talk about, but I'm not going to be able to do that. So I'm just kind of giving you a realistic preview and a heads up about that. Uh, because this chapter is just jam-packed with stuff. 
and uh, and we're not going to be able to, to cover it all. So just keep that in mind if you're if you're tempted to be like, hey, why didn't you say this? Why didn't you mention that? Or I wanted to. Trust me, I wanted to. Um, but 50 minutes is too long for me, and it's too long for you. So let's let's go ahead and look at um, the text this morning. We're going to look at um, chapter one, verses one through four. And here we go. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. I love that little tender ending there. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Well, Paul starts off with saying he's a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we could really unpack that. But what I, the main thing I want you to notice about that is that right from the beginning, Paul is asserting his authority. Okay, now he's, he's asserting his authority as a servant of God, and that has echoes of kind of designations of the prophets and other people in the Old Testament who called themselves a servant of God. Uh, but he's also asserting his authority as an apostle, and it's not for Titus' sake, okay? Uh, it's, it's because Titus is going to be acting on behalf of Paul, right? And chances are this letter is probably going to be read to the churches. Uh, at Crete as well. But Titus is going to be acting with Paul's authority as he handles this mess. And, and the message is basically that Paul is saying, listen, Titus is acting with my authority behind him, and I'm writing with God's authority behind me. That's what he's trying to communicate there. Now, I just want us to stop and just think about God's graciousness here as we kind of look at this first couple of verses. You know, Paul is, is an apostle of the Christian church. But do you remember when Paul used to be called Saul? I mean, just think about that for a second. When Paul was Saul, when he was a man on a very different mission, a man who was dead set, determined on destroying and persecuting that same Christian church, the man who was hunting Christians down, who was arresting them, putting them in prison, and even presiding over them being stoned to death. This is the same man who's now writing this letter. How is it that God's, one of God's most vicious enemies is now an apostle for that same God's kingdom? Because of our gracious and merciful God. Just think about that for a second. Think about the fact of who he's writing to. Titus. Titus, a non-Israelite a Gentile, okay? How, how is it that a non-Israelite is now in the kingdom? How is it that a Gentile has been grafted into God's chosen people as an equal heir of the kingdom promises again because of our gracious and merciful God who has torn down the wall that separates them, right? How is it that those in Crete believed the gospel? You know, Paul talks about the goals of his apostolic ministry in this passage. He says that he's used to bring people to faith in Christ, right? That God uses him to impart a knowledge 
of the truth, that this truth results in possessing the hope of eternal life. But why did salvation come to Crete? Notice something. If you're you're real quick, you'll miss it. Notice that Paul says he is an apostle in verse 1, for the sake of the faith of the elect. Elect. Now, those in Crete were not saved, ultimately, because of anything they did. It wasn't because of their good deeds or the righteous lives that they were living. Ultimately, they were saved for the simple fact that God had elected them or he had chosen them. And this is a very controversial and complex thing that we're talking about right now. We can't go into all the ins and outs of it. Maybe we can talk about it after the service. But my point is, the only reason they were saved is because God had chosen and elected them to be saved. Paul says in Ephesians 1, he says that those in Christ were chosen before the foundation of the world. And he says in the very next chapter, in chapter 2, he says that even the saving faith that we have, the faith that we put in Christ, we would say, was a gift from God. That's very, it's very humbling because, you know, what that means is that whether you're Paul or Titus or the Cretans or you or me, the reason we are all Christians and the reason ultimately that we're all in the kingdom is because we are one of the elect and our presence among them is simply due to the fact and rooted in the gracious choosing of God. Gracious and mysterious. Now, I'll never forget, I just had this thought of this story. I'll never forget my mom, um, when I was trying to talk to her about things like election or predestination, I was not using the E word and the P word, right? I didn't want to get her upset, but she figured it out. She's a pretty sharp lady. And she was just so, you believe in predestination, don't you? Guilty, I'm sorry. I tried, to, I tried to get around it, but not using that word. And then I remember a year or so later, she was, we were talking, and she looked at me, and she said, why did he choose me? That's a great question. Why did he choose me? And we'll never know the answer to that on this side of heaven. We may never know the answer to that, but he did according to his own counsel of his own will and to his good pleasure. He chose us. And it's a mysterious thing, but it's a glorious thing. Our, our presence among the elect is, is rooted in his gracious choosing. And that choosing was done by a God who, as Paul tells us in verse 2, gave the promise of eternal life before the ages began. A God who never lies a God who never changes, a God who is forever faithful, faithful to his promises and faithful to us. But notice what Paul says about the knowledge of the truth that we now all have, that it accords with godliness, or it leads to godliness. You know, Paul will talk about this in several other places in Titus, but here's here's the point for this morning. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that motivates us to pursue godliness or being more like Jesus. And it's the same grace that produces that godliness in us. Those who are saved by Christ will become like him. Christians will not stay the same people that they were before. And this is a major theme of Titus. We can't be the same people we were before. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, and by the same grace that saved us, that Spirit changes us. 
true Christian faith, which is the theme of the book, leads to godliness. And, and it's the reality, this reality, of true faith leading to godliness that is the basis for choosing those who will lead God's church. And that's what's coming up in our next section here as we talk about elders, how elders are God's gracious provision for his church. So why don't we take a look at verses 5 through 8. It's a little different than what's in your bulletin. I sliced it up a little differently. So 5 through 8. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And we'll stop there. I have to tell you, I was, I was pretty excited about preaching on this particular part of the passage. And yes, that is, I, I, I am being a little sarcastic. Because it's intimidating. It's impossible on, on, on our own. But we'll talk about that a little later. Paul's priority task for, for Titus on Crete is to appoint elders for the churches in the different towns. Now, some denominations disagree with us, but as Presbyterians, we believe that this passage and others is teaching that churches are to be led by groups of elders. In other words, that power and responsibility don't rest in one particular person, but it's a shared power and responsibility. And, and some denominations also have a different structure for church government that we do. And one of the reasons is because Paul, in this passage, uses two different words. You may have noticed he says elder in verse 5, and then he says overseer in verse 7. And sometimes that word can be translated bishop. And so some denominations see these as being two separate and distinct offices from one another, and their church structure um, reflects that. Now, I can't get into all this now, um, but we can... But we, we believe, as, as, as Presbyterians in the PCA, that here and in other places that these two words are used interchangeably for the same office. Okay, so whether Paul writes elder or overseer, he is referring to the same office. And in our context, you know, that means both teaching elders or pastors and ruling elders. They're all elders, so elders, overseers, teaching, elder, teaching elders, ruling elders, were all the same office of elder, okay? Now, who's chosen for elder by the church is very important because of the role that God has given to them. I mean, elders are God's gracious provision for the church in that, you know, they are the servant leaders of the church. They are uh, the ones who have, you know, have the primary responsibility of discipling their sheep, of of having them grow in grace and leading them into spiritual maturity. They teach the word of God and sound doctrine. They protect the church from those seeking to attack it and to destroy it, among many other things. So you can see why it's important for Paul to say to Titus, listen, appoint elders, right? Because, I mean, think of the context again. You have this rampant immorality and you have these false teachers. And elders are God's gracious provision, 
in addressing those two threats. So that's why he's telling them to appoint elders. Now, I guarantee you that when I read Paul's list here, some of you thought, whew, I'm glad I'm never going to be an elder, right? And then there are some guys who are here who are maybe thinking about being an elder, and they were like, man, I am never going to be an elder. I can't, I just, I can't, I can't live up to that. And of course, you know, the guys like me who are currently elders after, you know, either I read that or hear that, we think, why am I an elder? <laughs> and, and, you know, I think to some extent, responses like that are, are appropriate because being an elder is a weighty thing. It's, it's a weighty responsibility not to be taken lightly. But also at the same time, you know, don't, don't think that you're off the hook just because you're not an elder or you're never going to be an elder. Because the reality is, is that Paul is not just giving a measuring stick for elders here, but he's sharing characteristics of godliness that should be true for all Christians, whether they're going to be elders or not. Elders lead, but all of us should be pursuing these things. I mean, all Christians should be putting to death the sins that Paul talks about. All of us should be cultivating the positive things that he, he lists. We should be cultivating in our own lives. So don't think that just because you're not an elder or you're not going to be an elder that these things don't apply to you. Don't check out in the next 10 minutes because you think that this isn't about, about you and your life. Instead, ask yourself, you know, how is my life reflecting or not reflecting the things that Paul is talking about here. And the first thing Paul says is that elders should be above reproach, right? And this is important to Paul because he mentions it twice in this passage, verse 5 and verse 7. But what does it mean to be above reproach? I think it's helpful to remember what Paul says about himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where he says about himself, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's the Apostle Paul. Paul not only still sins, but he considers himself to be the chief of sinners. So above reproach can't mean that a person is sinless, or even that they don't struggle with sin in general, or even a specific Sin. Otherwise, Paul couldn't be an elder, and I can guarantee you there wouldn't be any elders in this place if that were the standard. So it has to mean something else. I think, I think Paul has, we need to take a bigger bird's eye view of what's in mind here. I think above reproach means, you know, it's, I'll just say several different things to kind of flesh it out. I think it means, you know, can someone point the finger at you or charge you with ungodly Behavior. You know, when someone, you know, someone inside the church or even outside the church thinks of a guy, you know, what's their first reaction? Is it something like, well, what a godly man? Or is it something like, what a hypocrite? That's, he's like the most corrupt businessman I know. I think that is part of above reproach. You know, when, when someone finds out that, some, that a man's nominated for an elder, are they surprised? Are they kind of like, Really? Or are they like, you know, that makes sense. I can totally see that. He should totally be an elder. 
Above reproach means not participating in some scandalous sin that hurts the reputation of the church or of, of our Savior. It means not being in the grip of a particular sin to such an extent that it impacts uh, that man's effectiveness as an elder or, or taints, taints his effectiveness as an elder. And I, and I think, too, it also means in a, broader, in a broader scope, I think it means that when faced with your own sin, there is the, the quick and the humble acknowledgement and response of repentance. I think elders should lead in repentance. Elders are to be leaders in modeling holiness, but they also need to lead in, in repenting and model their own need for the grace of the gospel of Christ. So elders need to be above reproach. The next thing Paul says is that elders are to be the husband of one wife. And oh boy, you know, how long we could talk about this one. <laughs> there are so many debates on to what exactly uh, this means. In fact, there, there are some that teach that a man can't be an elder if he's ever been divorced or if he's been divorced and remarried. And I, again, I can't get into all this, but I'm, I'm not convinced that this is what Paul's addressing here. The Greek literally says that an elder is to be a one-woman man. Now, now, Paul could be talking about polygamy here, right? Because especially with the context of being in Crete where that was present, he could be saying, listen, an elder just needs to have one wife. And I think that's included, but I think he's saying a lot more here. I think that when he says an elder needs to be a one-woman man, he is getting to the issue of whether, whether a man is faithful to his wife. You know, does he have a physical or a sexual relationship with another woman? Is he involved in an emotional affair? Is he the office flirt? You know, when he meets a woman, an, an, a, a woman, does he look her up and down every time he meets a new, a new person like that? Is he regularly indulging in, por in pornography? I think all these things are getting to the heart of what it means to be a one, or in this case, not be a one-woman man. It's a matter of faithfulness to your wife. Are you a one-woman man? Because how can someone faithfully care for the bride of Christ if he's being consistently unfaithful to his own? Right? Then Paul says, an elder's children should be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. This is another one of those things. You know, this word, you may, if you have any ESV Bible, you'll see probably a note at the bottom that it can be translated either believers or faithful, okay? Either one of those uh, work. So Paul could be requiring, literally, that a, an elder's children be Christians, be believers. I, I'm, I'm not sold on that. I, I, just, I think this would go beyond other requirements for elders, like in 1 Timothy for families. And I also think it would be difficult to kind of follow that, especially in the context of guys who have young children or babies, right? But it could mean that. Paul could be saying that. I think, though, that the better choice is, probably, is, is faithful, that he's saying that children need to be faithful. I think it makes more sense in this context because I think Paul's overall concern is, you know, the overall behavior of the children. It's a general faithfulness in mind here. Are, children's, are a man's children well-behaved? Are they respectful? Are they obedient to their parents? Or are they rebellious? Are they pursuing immorality and carousing? Again, the main issue here, we always have to kind of look at the, the bird's eye view. The main issue here is how does a, 
How does a guy lead his family? Right? How does he lead his family? Because if he can't manage his own family well, then how is he going to shepherd the family of God? These things are important. Okay, we're going to pick up the pace a little bit here. In verse 7, Paul says that an elder shouldn't be arrogant. <laughs> that one makes me a little uncomfortable. I mean, everyone struggles with arrogance to some degree, right? But I think Paul is looking at an entrenched pattern of arrogance. This is an arrogant person. That's what's in, in view here, because an arrogant person blinds themselves to their own failures and sins. Arrogant people are unteachable, and they're out of touch with their own need of grace. He says elders shouldn't be quick-tempered or violent. And I think that these would include both, you know, include abuse, both physical and verbal are in this category. Angry or violent people, people who, you know, who like to fight or to debate or argue in that sense, are not safe people. And they can't effectively minister. I, I just want to suggest to you, if you are someone who struggles with anger, okay, you know, a lot of times anger is just a symptom of what's going on below the surface. There's probably more going on down there that needs to be addressed because many times the root of anger, though it's being expressed as anger, the root of it may be things like fear or insecurity or shame and other things. So just want to encourage you to look below the surface. Paul also says that an elder shouldn't be a drunkard, and I would put other addictions in this category too. You know, addictions involve a lack of self-control and, and discipline for sure. But I would also suggest again that there's more going on underneath the surface. I, I believe that the real, the real root of, of addictions a lot of times is an issue of idolatry. And I say that because turning to alcohol or food or drugs, or pornography, they all involve turning to another idol, another God, one who we are seeking to get comfort from, or relief from, or a sense of power, or a feeling of control. So again, I think even addictions are rooted in something that's going on deeper. He says an elder should not be greedy, and here's the question I would ask, what is more of a motivator for you? You know, is accumulating material wealth or storing up treasures in the kingdom of heaven? You know, what does your church giving reflect about your heart? Those are things to think about. Well, you've hit all the, all the, uh, all the sins. Let's go to some of the virtues now, Okay. Paul says that elders should display virtues like being hospitable. And if you're, if you're married, you know, your wife is going to be an integral part of this one, right? And this means more than just you have people over for dinner. Okay, and that's an important part of it, right? It includes things like, do people feel welcome in your house? Do they feel comfortable? Do they feel like they can be themselves? Do they feel well-loved by you? Elders are to be lovers of good, Paul says. And, you know, there's a, there's a fundamental heart change that takes place when we become a Christian. And it's not just that we hate and avoid evil, although that's part of it. It's also that we treasure what is good. 
We delight and long for holiness. You know, God's commands become less of a burden and more of something that we desire to follow, something that's beautiful. You know, the truth of his words become, word becomes more and more precious to us. We become lovers of good and not just haters of evil. Paul says elders are to be controlled and self-disciplined. You know, are there other things or even other people that exercise undue control over you? I mean, how are you meeting your obligations and your commitments? I, I could go, you know, there are lots of things we could ask about that. But they're being controlled and self-disciplined. And he says that they are to be upright and holy. And basically, this is kind of, kind of summing up that theme again, right? Because what he's saying is, is that elders need to be the ones who are walking what they're talking right? Their, their practice must line up with what they, what they confess as their faith. Their, their belief must match their behavior. And if I had more time, like I said, I would flesh all these out. But what I want you to be struck with is this. The main qualification for elders is that they be godly men, okay? The criterion are spiritual in, nation, in nature, rather, Paul doesn't say that an elder needs to be a successful businessman. He doesn't say that they need to be charismatic or a great public speaker. He doesn't say that they have to have great contacts in the community. What he says is that they have to be godly men, faithful men, men who love and trust Jesus and live a life that reflects that. And their leadership should make other people want to love Jesus more and become more like Jesus. So for all these reasons, and, and many more, elders are God's gracious provision to us, to his church, and, and we need to choose them wisely and prayerfully. So they're God's gracious provision. Let's go take a look and see how they're also God's gracious protection for his church as we read verses 9 through 16 together. Paul continues, and he says that an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, and they but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Wow. And by the way, just to give you a heads up, if you think I'm going near that Cretan quote, <laughs> you better think again. <laughs> But he's, he's doing that for a reason, and one of those reasons is to stir his listeners to say, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be like that. But we're not, we don't have time to touch on all that. But just 
keep in mind, verse 9, Paul says that elders must hold firm to the truth and to sound doctrine. And this is more than just having, they need to have their theology straight, okay? I mean, that's important, of course. But it means that they, they believe and they cling to truth and to sound doctrine. It means that they're passionate about truth and teaching it to others and, and watching it change others. It means that they're zealous in guarding and defending it when needed. You see, elders know that where the doctrine of the church goes, so will the faithfulness and purity of the church. You know, churches in Crete are not the only ones that have to deal with false teachers. <laughs> I mean, so do we. I mean, from the very beginning, there have always been sheep in wolves' clothing who've attempted to devour God's sheep and destroy his church, and they continue to exist today. In some ways, I wonder if maybe the issue of false teachers are even more threatening or dangerous today. I think about all the media options that are available now. You know, I think of, you know, this false teaching is just gets published in books and in magazines. It gets taught at conferences and on cable TV shows. It gets spread through blogs and online sermons. I mean, make no mistake, this is not just an ancient church problem. I mean, what Paul is dealing with in Crete is a real threat today. We have the same issues. We have those who teach for shameful gain, who fleece the flock, as we say. There are those whose teaching is upsetting whole families in the true faith. There are those who are insubordinate because they rebel against the truth of God's word and teach their own. There are empty talkers because what they teach is false and it rings hollow, and there are deceivers because they lead people away from the truth and from Christ. Now, Paul's false teachers are probably Jewish Christians. I say that because he refers to them as being the circumcision party in verse 10. And then in verse 14, he says that they devote themselves to Jewish myths. So it's a safe bet that they're teaching something like the Cretans have to do other things, such as be circumcised or follow other aspects of the Jewish law in order to be made right with God. They're probably presenting all their man-made rules as biblical commands. You know, some form of, if you want to be a real Christian, you need to dot, 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 right? But make no mistake, they may wear a different costume today, but the descendants of these false teachers are with us today, and their attacks and deceptions are still in full force. They're dangerous and a serious threat to the church this is why Paul has the response that he does and why we should as well. In verse 11, he says, false teachers must be silenced. And then in verse 13, he instructs to rebuke them sharply. Why? Because he says in verse 15, they're unbelieving with minds and consciences that are defiled. He says in 16, they profess to know God but deny him with their works that they're detestable disobedient, unfit for any good work. There's an epic battle taking place in Crete, and there's an epic battle taking place in Loudoun County between two kingdoms, those who fight for the Christ's army of righteousness and those who are mercenaries of Satan who seek to destroy through their army of darkness. And that same battle goes on today, and it will continue to go on until Jesus comes back and finally defeats all of his and our enemies. 
But in the meantime, who are the ones who are called on behalf of the church to stand in the gap? Who are the ones who are called to gird up their loins and yield the sword of the Spirit? Who are the ones who have been commissioned to courageously charge into the heat of the battle to protect their Savior's bride and to fight for her? The ones we call elders. The ones who with fear and trembling accept the call to that office only because they trust that somehow the Holy Spirit will empower them and work through them. Okay, beloved brothers and sisters, here's your primary application for today. You need to pray for your elders. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm going to put them on the spot this morning, and I hope that's okay, but I would like to ask all the elders to stand, please, and just turn and face your, your people, your sheep, just for a moment. I'm... You need to pray for your elders, both the ones who are standing here today and the ones who are not here. These men who care and love for you so deeply, who sacrifice countless hours in service to you, men who aren't perfect, who are not free from struggling with sin, but they're godly men, and they're worthy of your imitation. They're faithful men who take being your elders very, very seriously. They are men who bear burdens that are heavier than most of you will ever know. They bear your burdens more than you'll ever know. They are men who long for you to grow in grace and spiritual maturity, whose wise counsel should not be taken lightly and should be treasured. But most of all, they are men who desperately need your prayer. They need your prayers for faith and for strength and your prayers of encouragement. They need prayers for the grace to continue to live lives that are above reproach. They need prayers for protection against Satan and his minion, That's that roaring lion who seeks to devour them. Do you have any idea how big the bullseye is, on the spiritual bullseye is on their backs? But there's also some other folks you need to pray for, and that is their wives, because... None of your elders in this church minister alone. Every woman is indispensable to his elder ministry here. These ladies, their wives, are co-laborers, they're cheerleaders, they're their support, and they want and they need your prayers too. We need your prayers. Please pray for us. You know, I, I just, I've just been thinking as I go through this, you know, Jesus was willing to die for his church. He was willing to lay down his life for his bride, to shed his blood, to have his body be broken, to rescue us from sin and certain damnation, every single one of us, to make sure that his, pure and, his bride was pure and spotless, to purchase eternal life for us. But what struck me as we've journeyed through this chapter is that while Jesus views the church as a bride worth dying for, he also sees her as a bride worth providing for and protecting. 
our holiness and godliness are important to Jesus. After all, he shed his blood to make us righteous, to make us blameless in God's sight. But he, he's also give, graciously provided elders to model that holiness for us, to stir us in pursuing holiness in our own lives. And he graciously uses those same elders to protect our holiness and the holiness of the church. And this, this makes me want to be more like the one who's done all this, to be more like Jesus, the one uh, who has shed his blood and provides all these things. This makes me sad over my progress and my own godliness in my own life. And as we talk about elders, it makes me tremble when I think of my own personal calling to be an elder. I mean, all these things make me see my, my desperate need of the grace of Christ. I mean, we all need the grace of Christ today. We all need grace to faithfully follow our Jesus, to have the determination that the Holy Spirit will make us more like him, to have faith that he will change us. And your elders desperately need the grace of Christ this morning, the grace to faithfully carry out their office, which they have no hope of doing on their own. Well, the good news is, my brothers and sisters, is that Jesus has once again offered his gracious provision to us this morning. Because we need grace, and the grace that we need can be found at his table. Let's pray. Father, these are weighty things, and that's okay. We need to be reminded that that being Christians means that we're being changed. That your grace saves us and restores the image of Christ in us. I pray, I pray that you would stir in our hearts this morning a desire for that. And I pray that you would unleash the Holy Spirit in our hearts to just change us. We are righteous in your sight, even now, perfectly righteous. And I pray that we would become more of who we already are in the here and now. And I do pray for the elders of this church. I thank you for them, for their faithfulness, and their love for their sheep. And I pray that you would protect them. And I pray that you would continue to empower them and give them wisdom as they seek to care for the sheep of this flock. And we pray that for elders who are both here and are not able to be with us this morning. And Father, I thank you most of all for your provision on the cross for us, your bloodshed and body broken. And I pray that as we celebrate your supper, that we would have a special encounter with your presence this morning. And I pray all these things in the matchless name of that great high priest who is both sacrifice and sacrificer, Jesus Christ. Amen.